0: So we are talking about unity within the body of Christ and the prominent position that that holds within the New Testament. And last week I shared that just hours before Jesus' crucifixion, he prayed four times in John 17 that his disciples may be one. The further you read in the New Testament, we see that unity was stressed with the church of Galatia, Galatians chapter three, verse 28. It was taught to believers in Colossae. Unity was at the center of Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10. It was a major reason for giving the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost and shortly thereafter. It was central to the establishment of deacons found over in Acts chapter 6. And as we are already seeing, it is a major theme that is being stressed to the believers right there in Ephesus. And that's just some of the passages in the New Testament that talk about the subject of unity. Now, the topic of unity we need to fully understand is not unity at all cost. It is unity with God's blessing. There are very specific passages in the New Testament In which God is very, very clear, and that is for the sake of ultimate unity, sometimes we cut off fellowship with either individuals or with groups of people. Now, these are just some of those categories. In areas of church discipline, we are told to remove a person who is unwilling to repent and have no fellowship with that person. That's very clear, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter number three. Also with people who are habitually argumentative and continually stirring up strife, we are told to reject, or as the New International Version would say, have nothing to do with that person after a second warning. Titus chapter three, verses nine and 10. And in areas of false doctrine, We are told to identify those false teachers and let them be accursed. Galatians chapter number 1, verses 6 through 9. In fact, the word accursed, it means devoted to destruction. We're we're wanting to separate from that individual. In 2 John, verses 7, 10, and 11, it tells us not to greet a false teacher Do not welcome them into your house. There is to be a level of separation between you and those who are teaching false doctrine. So in those cases, ultimate unity takes precedence over seasons or periods of division. Now today we are identifying the first three of six teachings that are found in Ephesians chapter 2 that should unite Christians together. Now let me be very clear in this. Everyone who claims to be a Christian, and please hear the emphasis on claims to be a Christian, does not hold to these teachings. Every denomination that claims to be Christian does not hold to these teachings. However, we understand these are not the only teachings that should unite believers together, but these are six foundational teachings that are our bedrock for bringing believers together in unity. These six teachings help us also understand distinctions between denominations. Many times people ask the question like, why do we have denominations? Are are they biblical, are they good, are they right? You're going to see these are some of the teachings that begin to differentiate different denominations. For example, why is Sherwood affiliated with Southern Baptist and not the United Methodist Church? Or not the Presbyterian Church of America? are not the assemblies of God. Like, why are those distinctives there? Part of these beliefs will help us understand that. Also, these beliefs are very foundational in a practical sense, For the believer who they get a phone call somewhere midweek and they got a friend or a family member who's saying, I've got to tell you about this new church I just visited. The pastor was saying this and the choir was singing this and the whole time they're talking, all you hear in your, your mind is like warning, like danger, 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 danger. And you want to be excited for your friend or your family member, but at the same time, you don't want them to get caught up in something that's not biblical these truths help lay out a foundation because remember in essentials we have to have unity in non-essentials we can have liberty but these are essentials this is every single person who is a born-again follower of Jesus Christ. These are pieces that keep us united. So without any further ado, I invite you to go back with me in the book of Ephesians, chapter number two. We're in verses 14 through 18 again. Um, In fact, we're actually finishing the second part, or I I say finishing, we're working on the second half of the key truth that I gave this last week. I I shared this statement. Jesus removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. And last week, there was a whole lot of emphasis, and we focused primarily on the things that he removed that had kept us divided. And this week and next Sunday, we begin working through the pieces that keep us together. So tonight, we are going to get to the first three of six of these truths found in Ephesians chapter number two. That being said, Read with me once again, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse number 14 and following. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace." and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having by having put to death the enmity and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the father let's pray father we ask again tonight may your spirit guide us into truth May the truths that we study this evening come alive in our hearts. Lord, we're praying that not only would there be deep doctrinal truths that are conveyed tonight, but help us to see how those beliefs, those truths, will direct and determine practical steps of application. We need you to do that for us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. Unity has an attractional quality. When we see strong unity in a marriage or with friends or in a military unit or with a sports team, there is something attractional about that. We want that, we want to be involved in that. So in John chapter 17, verse 23, In Jesus's final prayer for the church, just before the cross, he prayed that his disciples may be perfected in unity. Perfected in unity, not just decent at it, not just struggling to get by, perfected in unity. And then he goes on to say, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them. In other words, when the world sees, Perfect unity. Unity within the body of Christ. There's going to be two messages Jesus says will be conveyed at that moment. It will be known that the Father sent Jesus and it'll be known that the Father loves the world. That's what people will see when they witness true unity within the body of Christ. Now verse 14 tells us how that unity was obtained. For he himself is our peace. For those who were once divided they can now be united because jesus is our peace he brought jews and gentiles together he brought god and humanity together he brings believers together he himself is our peace so what kept us divided we talked about two pieces last week jesus removed the dividing barrier Now that was a specific dividing barrier, a physical barrier that was within the temple itself and it existed and it showed a distinction between the court of Gentiles and the three different courts of Jews. It was symbolic of the deep division between Jews and Gentiles. The physical barrier itself was not removed until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but the spiritual barrier was removed by Jesus at Calvary. Also, Jesus removed the sin barrier. In verse number 16, it says, "...and might reconcile them to God through the cross." The story of the Bible is a story of relationship and reconciliation. It's the story of how we have been created for relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship, but Jesus loved us while we were still sinners, and he made reconciliation possible through his death on the cross and through his bodily resurrection. Jesus himself is the one who removed the sin barrier. He removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. So now let's focus on the second part of that statement. What keeps us together? What are the pieces that unite us as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, let's kind of work our way into this. As a rule of thumb, it's always good to focus on repeated words and repeated phrases when you're studying scripture. And in this particular text, you're gonna find in verses 14 through 18, the word peace is found four different times. It's found in verse 14, it's found in verse 15, it's found twice in verse 17. The word one is also found four different times. It's found in verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, and in verse 18. Both of those words, Peace and one emphasize unity. Jesus brought those who were divided together into one and he established peace. Now it's also important to notice the words that come right after the word one. Verse 15 talks about one new man. Verse 16 talks about one body. Verse 18 talks about one spirit. In a very general sense, if you look at verse 14, it talks about one Savior. He's the one who made all of this happen. In a very general sense, verse 17 describes one message. He was like, there was peace preached to those who were far away and peace preached to those who were near. Peace of how people can be reconciled to God. Verse 18 mentions the Father. Definite article. Not many fathers not a father of a large group, but there's one, it's the father. Now, if you were to look over in chapter four, verses four through six, you will find the apostle Paul picks up this idea of oneness and unity once again. And notice what he says. He speaks of one body and one spirit And one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. Repetition is essential for learning. Just as repeated words help us identify major themes, so repeated concepts help us to learn major truths. Now we have these six truths that keep us united. Here's the first three of those. We have the same Savior. This is found in verse 14. We have the same Savior. Now you might think, well, Paul, that is elementary. Why do we even need to bring it up? Well, we need to bring it up for multiple reasons, but one, look at how clear it is that Jesus alone is the Savior. He himself is our peace. Remember, he alone, he by himself, he without any other is our peace. It's he, speaking of Jesus, who made both into one. It's he, speaking of Jesus, who broke down the dividing barrier. He abolished the law, the commandments contained within the ordinances so that in himself, he might make the two into one new man and that he might reconcile them both into one body before God. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to those far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to one spirit through the father. Now, how much saving did you and I do in that? None. How much reconciling did you and I do in that? None. How much uniting did you and I do in any of that? None. How much suffering on the cross did you and I do in any of that? None. Jesus alone is the hero of this story. It doesn't matter the unity we enjoy. It doesn't matter the salvation we experience. At the end of the day, it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with him. The first truth that should keep Christians united is we have the same Savior. Just as there is a bond between siblings who share the same parents, our players who play for the same coach, our employees who have the same boss, our fans who cheer for the same team there is a foundational bond of unity within Christians because we have the same savior now again somebody might say why do we even need to say that because everybody who claims to be a Christian does not recognize Jesus as their savior everybody who who quotes Jesus who admires his skills and his leadership in his teaching is not a Christian. The issue is, is he your Savior? There's one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is the name of Jesus. So let me just give you a couple of examples. New age teachers speak of Jesus as an ascended guru or an enlightened teacher, but they reject him as the Savior. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was a spirit child created by Elohim and Mary. He is the elder brother of all people and spirit beings. His death on the cross, according to Mormonism, does not provide full atonement for sin. If it doesn't provide atonement for sin, he's not our savior. Jehovah's Witnesses teach Jesus was not God. He did not rise from the dead, and he is not coming again. Christian science teaches that Jesus was not Messiah, but he displayed Christ-like or Messiah-like qualities. They teach he did not suffer for sins, he did not die on the cross, he did not rise from the dead, and he is not coming again. I need you to hear me. If Jesus is not God, if he did not die a substitutionary death on the cross for sin, if he did not rise from the dead bodily three days later, he does not have have the ability to be our savior. For somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but they do not believe those fundamental pieces of his work on the cross, they are not a Christian. Doesn't matter how much they wanna argue it. Doesn't matter how much they say, we read the same Bible. At the end of the same day, somebody can read this Bible and not know the God of the Bible. The issue is, is he your your savior? Here's the next one. We have the same identity. Look in verse number 15. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus made both Jews and Gentiles into one new man. Now, the truth that we're about to get into is quintessential truth for the fullness of the Christian life this could be one of those discipleship areas that somebody can be in church for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and never understand the truth that we're about to get into. This is also one of those fundamental areas. If somebody is taught this truth from the beginning of their Christian life, it'll revolutionize how they see their life as a believer. Here's the thing I want you to hear. The word that the Apostle Paul chose for new does not refer to something recently completed. It refers to difference in kind and quality. This is gonna be huge, this is gonna be important. He's not talking about something that is recently completed. He's talking about something new in kind and new in quality. So for example, Let's say you buy a new house. If you tell your friends, come over to my new house, you could be referring to new as it was recently constructed, or you could be referring to it as new as it's new to me. Like you're the new owner. One is newness of construction, the other is newness of ownership. Now, you're not necessarily saying new in the sense that there has never been another house ever created in the world that looks like my house. There might be 50 other houses in your subdivision with the same basic floor plan as your house, but when you say, come over to my new house, you could be talking about new in construction or new to you. In this case, the apostle Paul is not talking about new in the sense of recently constructed. This is new in kind and quality. In other words, this is never before seen, never before experienced, never before created. There is a new man, there is a new person, this is the same exact idea that he is talking about with people in Corinth. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's completely new, never before seen, never before experienced. The New Living Translation takes it like this. What this means is that those who become Christians become new persons they are not the same anymore for their old life is gone a new life has begun now to the best of my knowledge none of us have changed species I think we're all still people same DNA look the same on the outside but it's saying that we're new persons completely new, never before seen. This is not just new in construction, this is new in kind, new in quality. It's talking about the fact that this is a newness that only God can do. This is what it means to be born again. You were born at one point, listen to this, born at one point in Adam under the curse of sin, and now you have been born again in Christ as partakers of his righteousness. By our possessions, that's about our position. Now our possessions, we move from being spiritually destitute, dead in trespasses and sin, to being spiritually loaded. Our spiritual bank account is full based upon Ephesians chapter 1. So why do those truths matter at all in a practical sense? It's because too many Christians believe that after becoming a Christian, their job is to correct all the wrongs from their past. They feel like they need to spend the rest of their life doing good things in order to pay God back for what he's done for them. There's too many Christians who believe that God's goal after salvation is to fix all the flaws of their old life. I need to read 2 Corinthians 5, 17 again. What this means is those who become Christians become new persons. They're not the same anymore. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Hear this, God has no intention of joining his new life to our old nature. God is not trying to clean up. He's not trying to polish up. He's not trying to patch up who you once were. In other words, he's saying you are a new person. You're a new creation in Christ. If we make the goal of the Christian life to fix our old self, listen, you're still focused on self. If you make the goal of the Christian life to make up for all the things you did in your past, you're still focused on your past. Paul told believers in Philippi, brothers, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Paul didn't have time to wallow in all the stuff of his past because that's not his identity. That's not who he is. He is a new creation in Christ. When the New Testament refers to those who were born again, the terminology changes. It's clear. The Bible says that those who are in Christ, it says you're a saint, you're holy, you're righteous, you're a child of God, you're an heir of God, you're partakers of righteousness. And the moment some Christians hear that, there's an offense that comes up inside of them. Sometimes there's a barrier that comes up inside of them because they immediately hear those words and then they evaluate it based upon how they perceive themselves. And they'll say things like, but I don't feel like a saint or I don't act like I'm holy or I still mess up, I still do things I shouldn't do. That description could not possibly be for me. You need to hear this. You are who God says you are. You have what God says you have. God has given us everything needed for life in godliness. The problem is we often still see ourselves through the lens of the old life. God sees us through the perfection of Christ. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Our position is in Christ. Now that does not mean at all at all you all gonna hear this that does not mean at all that once you become a believer you don't sin anymore here's what that means it means your sin no longer defines your identity prior to Christ you were a sinner who occasionally did what was right after Christ You are a saint who occasionally does what is wrong. Did you hear what just happened there? Your identity is changed because of him. It's him. And if we miss that, then we've missed so much of what he wants to live through us. So here's the next piece. We are part of the same body. This is found in verse 16. It says, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. Those who are in Christ, they are in the body of Christ. Within the New Testament, there's a number of different illustrations that are given to help the church understand what it looks like to be in Christ. Uh, The church is seen as the bride of Christ. It's seen as the body of Christ. It's referred to as the flock of God. Each description gives insight into the relationship between God and believers, as well as between believers and others within the church. Now, in verse 16, it tells us this one word. We're a part of a body. The image is that of a human body. We talked about that even this morning. The body has many parts. There's ears and eyes and toes and and bones and ligaments and muscles and organs and all of that, but it comes together in one body. If the body is to function properly, It happens by each part operating according to how it is designed and how it's gifted to function. Now, all of those parts come together in one body. I'm going to just tell you, sometimes in the body of Christ, it's like herding cats. Because sometimes all those parts don't like to play well with each other. Sometimes the, the parts are, they're, they're being fitted together. I like the fact that that is an ongoing thing, fitted together according to Scripture. But here's the thing. We all have distinct gifts and experiences and abilities. It's, those things are different. But we have the same Savior and the same identity, and we're a part of the same body. And if the church is to function properly, all of that diversity has to be submitted to the head who is Christ and when it is, it flows together. So Jesus, by removing the dividing ball, by creating one new man, by reconciling both Jews and Gentiles into one body, Jesus makes us equal members of that body. There are no divisions in the body of Christ based on race, based on class, based on nationality, or based on past. We are equal members in the body of Christ. As a pastor, I have no higher standard in the body of Christ than anybody else does. A believer who's been walking with Jesus for 50 years has no higher standing than the one who's been walking with Jesus for five minutes it's not about maturity it's not about merit it's not about position there is equality in the body of christ now when we understand that equality we also understand what happens to one part of the body it impacts all of us if there are brothers and sisters in christ who are devastated by natural disasters if there's brothers and sisters in christ struggling with sin if there are those who are burdened by oppression, if there are those who were killed for their faith, it impacts all of us. We're part of the same body. That's the beauty of what you see happening in the book of Acts. In Acts chapters two and three, Followers of Jesus, they were united together in the message that Peter shared. They're united together in prayer as that unity brought them together. And there were people being persecuted. They would sell their possessions and give to each other as they had need. There was unity. They cared for each other. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were united. And according to scripture, it says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. In other words, when the world saw what was happening to them. Listen, what was happening to persecuted people. They said, I want to get in on that. That's not normal. But there is something unbelievably attractive and beautiful about people loving, sacrificially caring, looking out for each other. And the scripture says when the world sees that It will let people know Jesus was sent by the Father and the Father loves them. And according to Acts, there were people being added daily to that number. The body was caring for needs of the body. Their lives revealed that they're not living for self. They're not living for personal desires. They're not living for individual agendas. They were pursuing Jesus and they were loving each other. And God used their lives to validate a message of grace and love and forgiveness and hope. He used unity. So here's my question for you. If following Jesus changes everything, and a major part of what he wants the world to see is unity among his disciples how did those teachings change the way you interact with each other how should they change the way we interact with other churches in the city remember what i say all the time it's not about our church it's about his kingdom other churches in town they are not our competition we are together we're one body Their expression of how they worship, sometimes their views of certain beliefs, they might be different than ours. And again, in essentials, we have to have unity. In non-essentials, we can have liberty. But in all things, we show love. It doesn't matter whether or not they believe everything that we believe about every topic that we think is important to us. At the end of the day, God still says they're part of the body. Love them. Love them. So when another church is hurting, that should not be reason for this church or another church to all of a sudden have joy that somehow we've won up the competition. They're not competition. They're a part of the body of Christ. That's a reason why we can pray and get excited about planting churches and, and serving others and working in different cities, because when the body is working together, it, it helps everyone. If it's the right thing for the kingdom of God, it'll be the right thing for the local church. Yes. But if you think local church first, kingdom somewhere else down the road, oftentimes we start drawing barriers around each other and say, I, we got, we got to protect what's here. The moment that comes in, the eyes come off the mission God's called us to. And now we're focused on something that God worked hard to help us see. That's not what you're to be focused on. He removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. That's the first three of these uniting truths. Next week, I'll give you the next three. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word Thank you for unity in the body of Christ. We give you praise for our salvation, praise for what you are doing. Lord, you alone are worthy of praise. In Jesus' name, amen.